Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you this morning. And you're awake. That's great. All right. It's always good to start with a wake crowd. Uh, I appreciate all of you coming out, all of you uh, being patient with me as I learn your names. So thank you for continuing to introduce yourself to me. I do page through the, the uh, directory every week and try to put names with faces, but uh, my memory's not as great as it used to be. So I appreciate your patience with me. An announcement. Uh, last week I made a mistake. Uh, I know that's hard to believe, uh, but uh, it's the first of many. You will find out. But Children's Church will not begin next week on the first because that's Labor Day. And most of us are kind of in and out and, you know, starting school and all that. So we're, we're going to start Children's Church on the 8th. So I apologize for my lack of knowing my calendar. Uh, so we'll be starting on the 8th of September, 9.30 service. Children's Church will run from age 6 to 6th grade. Uh, and we'll stay with what we have, uh, the nursery, up until age 5 as well. So we'll have 0 to 6th grade available during the service. Which leads me to bring up the 9.30 service. I think it's important that as we make changes or as we stay consistent with what we've done, that you know the why behind certain things like that. So here goes. One of the main reasons we're leaving the service at 9.30 and not having Sunday school is this. The elders and I, we greatly desire for all of you to come to church and to be fed and to be challenged through God's word. We also greatly desire each and every one of you to have deep relationships with one another. Life is hard and we need one another. We need time to gather when we're not listening to someone like me, but when you're actually being listened to. So we need time to be able to share as well as to take in. And so the purpose of not having Sunday school and for having a time of fellowship afterwards is we want, you, we want to encourage you to stay, to linger, uh, to visit with one another. We bribe you with coffee. Uh, so stay around and enjoy one another. Uh, we also want to honor our volunteers and not overstretch anyone. So in the process of we're in the process of consolidating our volunteers and, and having everyone be part of either ages zero to sixth grade during that time during the service, all right? Another reason is so that your families can have more time together. I'm just like you, and my family is probably a lot like yours. Uh, we know what it's like to wake up on Sunday, regardless of what time the church service is at. Could be 11 o'clock, could be 8 o'clock. Uh, we always wake up just a little bit before the time we need to, to leave, right? And, and then everyone seems crazier, more on edge. There's always something that comes up on Sunday morning. I think it's the devil's way of trying to get us distracted, right? I don't know what, else, what other reason it would be, but it's always an issue getting out the door on Sunday morning, regardless if it, if it was 1 o'clock in the afternoon or 9.30. So we would, we, this is how our, it would go for us. We'd wake up in the nick of time to get to church, um, and then we'd, we'd come in and we'd leave right away because we always wanted to, to watch the Packers. I'm sorry, we're Packer fans. And so we'd leave right away. We'd go get the ham and rolls and the coleslaw, and we'd stop, and then we'd go home, and we'd turn on the TV, and it would be 4 o'clock before we'd know it. And then I, this was back in the day, I'd have to go get this stuff ready for, for chimney work the next day, so I'd load up the truck and get the trailer ready, figure out where I was going to go, and the kids were doing homework, and they were working on their, their, uh, their devices, and Kelly would be doing taxes and whatever, and it would be 7.30, 8 o'clock, and we'd finally look at each other and go, oh, I guess we should probably get ready for the, the week. And then we'd, we'd go to bed, and we really didn't have much time to talk or connect, which is what Sunday is about. Very little conversation. 
I don't suspect you're all as bad of parents as I am, um, but maybe some of that description you can relate to. After my wife and I woke up to the fact that this probably wasn't very healthy, we've decided to change our Sunday routines, and we made it intentional. So we usually come home from church now, and we do something enjoyable. It's not always the Packer game. Sometimes it is. Uh, but we do something enjoyable as a family, and then we take time to sit down and we debrief the week, and we talk about the upcoming week. We talk about the sermon. We, we share relational issues. We, we plan the next week out. We share our burdens. We sometimes argue, and sometimes we resolve those differences. And, and we, we do this all with our kids, and we make it a time that we can come together, because I think time to come together is important. And our, we're not, nowhere near perfect, trust me. Our house is not perfect. Uh, but, it is, but we try. And as elders, we want to encourage you to take this extra hour, because sometimes getting home just a little bit earlier can help with that, and take some time to invest uh, in your kids and make it an intentional day. Here's what I believe, that strong families are the mortar that hold the bricks, to the, church, the bricks of the church to the foundation of Jesus and to one another. Strong families are the mortar that hold us together. So that's our heart behind why we kept the church service at 9.30, why we have a fellowship time, and why we're not having Sunday school. All right, that was the longest announcement known to mankind. You thought that was the sermon, didn't you? That wasn't anywhere close to the sermon. Uh, so uh, if you're ready for a nap, you just have to wait a few more minutes, okay? Try not to do it when I'm watching. <laughs> All right, so we're going we're gonna to be in Ephesians chapter 1 today, verses 11 through 14. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, um, it's also going to be on the screen behind you. And if you can, and if you would like to, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Thank you. You may be seated. So as some of you know, I used to make a living uh, by cleaning and rebuilding chimneys with my father-in-law, who is here today. I saw him out there. It's hard work, it's dirty work. When you rebuild chimney, you tear down the old one first. You remove the concrete crown and then all the brick all the way down to the roof line. And at that point, you will typically find that there's chimney block underneath the roof line. It's your firm foundation. From there, you actually build and you go up to the predetermined height. And those, those chimney block go all the way down to the basement. When you're rebuilding chimney, you need to get to the solid, undeteriorated, secure chimney block foundation. And from there, you're going to rebuild up. So when I would get to the foundation, I would remove all the debris, clear away all the clutter, and study it, and see what was there, and then say a prayer that we could finish before the rain would come. And on that solid foundation, I would begin to lay brick by brick upon another to the predetermined height. Well, one time when I was still green, I don't know if my father-in-law remembers this or not, but I was, he was training me, and he let me lay the first course of brick. And I, so I laid the first course, laid a couple more, and he came up, he was mixing mud, and he looks at me and he goes, where'd you, see, where'd you go wrong? Did you see you went wrong? I was like, uh, nope, I don't see it. And he said, well, you started out wrong here. And what I had done is I had laid the brick, uh, the pattern wrong. 
And so the pattern was all laid out the way it shouldn't be. And I w we had to tear it back down and start over, and I learned a valuable lesson that day. First, well, actually, here's the lesson. Um, take time to study the foundation before you lay the first brick. Because if you don't study the foundation, you don't know where you're going to lay that first brick, the rest of it's going to be off. When you finish laying the brick, then you pour a concrete crown on top. The crown seals the structure from the elements, from the rain, from the snow, from the wind, from fire. It holds all the brick together that you've just built, all four sides. It holds it together in a solid structure. Um, the cement is usually four to five inches thick, reinforced with concrete, and it would take something extraordinary to break it down. So Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, is building brick upon brick the elements of our faith. And he's beginning with a firm foundation. He wants us to look at our firm foundation before we get into how we build our lives off of that. He begins with a call to worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is purposeful. Paul wants the attention of his readers, of us, to be drawn to the, found, the solid foundation of our faith, which is Jesus, and the foundational act, which is worship. Worship is where everything begins. In worship, we remove the debris of our lives, we clear away all the clutter, and we focus on the foundation of our faith. If we don't take time to worship Jesus, we will get it all wrong. We will do good works out of the wrong motive. We get caught up in sin. We will work in our own strength. So like that chimney I started building, it might look okay to most people, but it will not be how God designed. So worship is vital. Just as Paul sources his whole letter in the worship of God, so we must source our whole lives in the worship of God. Our relationship with him and our worship of him is foundational to all that we do. Worship comes first. It is the source of everything else. When we focus on the truth of who God is, on the love he demonstrated to us, on his incredible riches and power, everything else in life, life falls into its proper place and into the proper perspective. Think about this. If we have plenty we begin to recognize that all good things come from his gracious and bountiful hand. If we have need, we will be assured that God is capable of providing. If we have a trial, we can be confident that God is and always will be in control. So from that humble and grateful posture of worship, we then walk through life as Jesus walked. So two weeks ago, we started this section of great praise and adulation to God. We focused on the Father, the Father chose us, and he adopted us into his family. Then last week, we focused on the Son. The Son, Jesus, died in our place, and his shed blood provided the ransom and forgiveness of our souls. Today, we'll focus on the Holy Spirit, who, in my own words, he seals the deal. And you'll see what that means in a bit. So each member of the Trinity is involved in our salvation and our security in Christ. For those of you who may not understand what, the, what I mean by the word trinity, it is a foundational doctrine of the church. However, it is another one of those paradoxes that God, about God that is difficult for us to grasp. At face value, it is actually a contradiction in our Bible, at face value. Let me explain. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, 
It says this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So God is one God. And all through the Moses writings in the Hebrew Bible and the prophets' writings read that God telling his people not to worship other gods, that he is the only one and the only God to worship. Yet in the Gospels and in Paul's writings, we seem to see something a little bit different. You've got Jesus claiming to be God. You've got, he claims that God the Father is God. And then he promises to send his Holy Spirit, which is also God. So, and when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. That's the Holy Spirit. And then God the Father speaks from heaven. And then Jesus said to his disciples later on, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit being God, John chapter 14. Then before Jesus ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples the great commission and tells them to baptize believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we have this Old Testament thing talking about God is one God, and yet it is clear that he's described as being more than one God, three persons. So this is one of those doctrines which is difficult to understand, but it's central to our faith. It is a mystery. Paul uses that, that word a lot in this book we're going to see. This is a mystery, a paradox like predestination and man's will. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, looking through both eyes gives us a better picture of reality than simply looking through one eye. How can God say, the Lord our God is one God, and yet the Son and Spirit are both God as well? It's a mystery. It is the truth about God that we must accept and not try to make consistent. We need to resist the urge to be like our scientific American culture always having to have an explanation for everything. Everything has to be rational, right? Nothing can be left unexplained. We have to know the root cause of everything. But remember, we must, not be, care we must be careful to not make God in our own image. In other words, we are not to put God in a box by trying to make him consistent or entirely knowable. God is incomprehensible. We could study him a lifetime and not ever scratch the surface of understanding who he is. We are made in his image, yes, but in another sense, he is nothing like us humans. He is glorious and mighty and powerful. Somehow he fills heavens, and yet he dwells in our hearts. He controls the galaxies, and yet he holds us in the palm of his hands. The Bible calls him an angry and jealous God, and yet he's incredibly kind and generous and loving. What I find myself wanting to do is to make God explainable and simple and understandable and predictable and controllable. Interesting thing is, when I try to make God controllable, I am subtly doing something else. You know what that is? I'm making myself God. Because if I can control God, then he bends to my will, and then I'm in the driver's seat. But that's not how it works. That's a dangerous ground. God is not to be controlled or manipulated. We do not determine who God is. God is God. Let him be God. He is one God, but he's also the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Let's accept the truth by faith. Let's accept the truth along with the inconsistency. God being unpredictable is actually a wonderful thing. For who would have predicted that he would love us sinners enough to send his son, a part of himself, and have him murdered for our sake? It is a mystery, it's a mystery for generations that no one would have predicted, but yet is to our good. So let God be God. When it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to predestination, man's will, let God be God. Let him be unexplainable and just bask in his glory. It's to the praise of his glory. If we see through verses 3 through 14 that there's three times that to the praise of his glory is mentioned. And I think it's to correspond with the three persons of the Trinity. It's in verses 6, 12, and 14. One for each member of the Trinity. All right, so verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There it is again. We are predestined by God. In him we have obtained an inheritance, it says. It would better be translated, in him we are claimed as his inheritance. In him we are claimed as his inheritance or claimed as his possession. If you look in your Bibles, uh, if you have a cross-reference, there will be a verse that's cross-referenced to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9. And it's a cross-reference for this idea of claimed as his possession. God chose to take the nation of Israel as his own inheritance, as his own portion out of all the nations of the earth. Now, as we said last week, in the fullness of time, God has chosen to make known the mystery he has held for centuries, and that is the mystery that the Gentiles would also be part of his portion, part of his inheritance. Just as Israel was chosen by God, all the peoples of the earth now so are chosen by God as his possession today, and it encompasses all nations. And he claims us as his possession. He wanted to buy us. He did not go to Costco and get conned into purchasing one of the samples on the end of the aisle there. He did not go to the marketplace and barter for the lowest price. No, he knew our value and our worth, and he paid full price for us. I love this line from the song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. It says, he says this, Two wonders here I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value is fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. We are of infinite worth because we are all created in the image of God. Yet we are completely unworthy because of our sinful state. And yet God has made us his inheritance, his possession. That's incredible to me. And it's according to the purpose of him who works. I think this is important. God is a working God. He's not idle. He's not asleep. He's not aloof. He's a God who works. Now, sometimes it might feel like God is silent, like God is ignoring us, or he doesn't care. And we often interpret God's silence as indifference, or maybe even a lack of love. This is an unproductive lie that our mind and the enemies tell us. If God doesn't answer my prayer just like I prayed it in the time frame that I prayed it, then he doesn't love me or care for me. You ever thought that? I know I have. Like I said earlier, though, that's subtly taking control. 
It's me playing God as if I know better. But God is working all things. He's a working God. He's at work even when you don't see it. And he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. All things include the things that you're going through. The good things, the blessings, the raise at work, the good grades at school, the new car, the new house, the newest video game for you young ones. But all things also include those things which may be painful and strenuous and difficult. A bad diagnosis, a death in the family, a terrible accident, a child in prison, a friend stuck in addiction, a divorce. The first list I gave sounded great. The second list did not sound so good. How can a good God and a loving God be working all things according to the counsel of his will, in both good and bad? That's a question we all wrestle with. I think this is where the gospel story really comes alive. From a human perspective, Jesus being beaten and mocked and whipped, tortured, betrayed, rejected, abandoned, and ultimately crucified was a complete failure. It was a mess. How could anything good come of it? He was dead. The relationships were severed. The promises were unfulfilled. The hope was dashed. The healings were pointless. The parables lost their meaning. The hypocrites won. The sinful religious leaders came out on top. The powers of darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But that was from man's perspective. From God's perspective, it was completely different because he knew the end of the story. He saw the whole thing. So Jesus' body was to be resurrected. And in that, all relationships were restored and infinitely more were added to the body of Christ. All God's promises were fulfilled. Hope was renewed. Lives were healed. The parables still speak today. The hypocrites actually got theirs. The religious leaders were humiliated and the powers of darkness were defeated. When Jesus was in the tomb, I'm sure Peter and John were devastated. But from God's perspective, all those bad circumstances were actually for all of our good. Not only for the good of his son, Jesus, but also for all those who would believe on him. It's all in the perspective. God's perspective is infinitely more encompassing than mine is. He can foresee how a bad event in my life will lead to something incredibly good in the future. You might be at a point where you've lost a relationship. Maybe you've been betrayed. Perhaps you received a terrible diagnosis this week. Maybe you lost that dream job. Maybe someone close to you stopped talking to you. First of all, in all these things, Jesus understands. He's been there. But even when we mess up, even when we sin or others sin, God is working in all these things according to the counsel of his will. Nothing is out of his control. God is the eternal ruler and governor of the universe. His will, though we can disobey it, is never thwarted. His purposes are always worked out according to his will. Nothing is out of his control. I find this so incredible. It's a paradox. I get it. It's like, how can, how can we make choices and yet God's will still happens? 
How can that happen? I don't know, but to me, it means God is great and amazing that in spite of free creatures that run contrary to his plan and that hurt each other and sin and muck up all the time, he is still powerful enough and wise enough and sovereign enough to orchestrate everything according to his will. I don't know how he does it, but he does. And that's what makes him God. And I'm so glad he's God and not me. (laughs) I'm so glad he's God and not me. But I do know this. His will is always good for his children. Always good for his children. So no matter what you're going through, you can know, ultimately, he's got your good in mind. And it's to the praise of his grace in verse 6. Go all the way back up to verse 6. For the Father, it's the praise of his grace. Why does God choose us? Why did God adopt us? Why does he make us Gentiles part of his chosen possession? It demonstrates that he is not a brooding and vindictive and judgmental God, but a gracious and loving and merciful Father. And so, we could be to the praise of his glory. God is pleased when free people decide to follow his will. This brings him glory and it brings him honor. What brings you more pleasure? When you take that remote and press the power button and your TV comes on, I know there's some pleasure involved in that. Or when you ask your kid to go and clean the bathroom and he does so with a cheerful and good heart. Right? Exactly. I thought so. This is why God gave us a will. Because when we choose to live in accord with his will, he is well pleased and he receives glory and he receives honor. So verse 12 and 13. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Last week we looked at the fact that we're forgiven through the Son. And in here he talks about our hope. He's our hope. Hope is confident expectation. We who were the first to hope, this refers to the Jewish believers, They were the initial members of the new community of faith called the church. But as we see in Paul, as Paul writes and continues his letter, he goes from we and he makes it into you also. Verse 13, he says, you also. In him, you also when you believed. And this means that Gentiles are included in God's inheritance and are part of God's family, just like the Jews were. Now this word hope means confident expectation. Not an I wish but an I'm certain. Kind of like when your best friend says that they just purchased your favorite book on Amazon and you wait in expectation, you hope for its arrival, right? You don't wish it will come because you know it has been purchased and it is certain to arrive. You hope in expectation for its coming. This is the hope that we have in Christ. We don't wish for his salvation. We don't wish for his return. We wait expectantly for it. And then it says, we heard the truth. And Paul explains what this is. He says, the gospel of your salvation. Here's where human responsibility comes into play. In order for there to be hearing, there must be someone speaking. Someone has to be responsible enough to speak. But someone also has to be responsible enough to listen. I don't know about you men, but have you ever had your wife say to you, I can tell that you heard me, but you didn't listen to me. You ever had that said? Yeah, it's been said to me. I'm, I'm guilty. Um, hearing is one thing. Listening is another, right? Yeah. Listening is another. In other words, we comprehend with our, 
what, with our eardrums what sound we picked up in our ears. And then we believe. So we pick up this sound, we hear it, and then we listen to it, and then we have to believe. And there it is, faith and belief. In the midst of all this talk of God ordering everything according to the counsel of his will, predestining us to be adopted, choosing us as his inheritance, there's a small but very significant word that has to do with us, and that's belief. We hear it, we listen, and we say, yep, that's true, and that's belief. It's not the size of your faith. You just need a very little bit. It's not the extent of your faith. You simply need to believe that Jesus died, buried, and was risen on your behalf. But we do have the responsibility to believe. And it's all to the praise of his glory. We believe, and it results in the praise of Jesus' glory. It confirms all that he is. It honors him and his death. It proves to all the world that he is a gracious and generous and forgiving Savior. You see how our responsibility and his sovereignty work together? And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. In verse 13 and 14, so we've talked about the Father, we've talked about the Son, and now we're finally getting into the Spirit. Into the Spirit, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So the third point is we are protected by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is a bit of a mystery to all of us. But he does play a significant role in the life of a believer. In a few weeks, we'll come back to the topic of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that he gives each of us in the church. But today, we're going to look at the Spirit's protection and his sealing. As a, he's our seal, it says. He's, he's, um, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There are a couple of different ways you can, we use the word seal. It can be a sign of authenticity. When I did immigration work, we would see lots of passports and, and really important official government documents come across our, our desk. And all important documents would have a seal of the U.S. or some other country or of a notary on them. The seal certified a signature or authenticated a document. The Holy Spirit seals us simultaneously the moment we believe. The Holy Spirit's sealing is not a separate experience. It's not something that happens later on. It happens when you believe. When we believed and God adopted us into his family, like the U.S. seal on a document, the Spirit authenticates our new relationship with God and certifies God's signature on us. The Holy Spirit is the seal before God and everyone else that we are his and that we are in his family. And there's another way that a seal works, and it's for security or protection. When I would pour that five-inch thick concrete crown, remember, around the top of the crown on the, on the chimney, <clears throat> its purpose was to seal the whole chimney from the elements. So the concrete bonds to the brick, and it brings all four sides together, unifying the structure and sealing out the harmful elements of the wind and the water and the fire. So the Spirit seals us securely 
and bonds us together into God's family. He, did, he not only protects us from our enemies of sin and Satan, but his seal upon us is the guarantee that we are united with God and with each other even when we fail and when we sin. Remember, it takes a lot to break a chimney crown. It takes a lot. It would take an incredible amount to break this seal that the Holy Spirit puts upon us. And he's God, so there's nothing that can break that seal. And then it says he is the guarantee. Now, this, this, there's a bunch of different translations that translate this different ways. So it would be better translated he is the earnest or the first installment, the earnest money or the first installment. The Spirit is the earnest money of our inheritance. What is our inheritance, you ask? I believe it's referring here to our inheritance of eternal life. All those who believe in Jesus are promised eternal life. But how do we know that we have eternal life? We still die, right? When you buy a home, it can be a fun process. For some of us, it can be very stressful. But it can be pretty, it, it's a great, great process. And when you get to this point, you're like, I can't believe I'm signing my name to a piece of paper and I'm saying I'm going to pay this amount for the next 30 years? Wow. It's incredible. But just before you get to that point, there's a small chunk of money you give to the bank confirming your desire to complete the transaction and fulfill the contract. It seals the deal, so to speak. It's the first installment and a promise in good faith that you will pay the full amount. Like that earnest money, the Holy Spirit is the down payment for us to receive eternal life. We receive the first payment now in the person of the Holy Spirit and in good faith of much, much more to come. The Spirit seals the deal until we acquire full possession of it. So he seals the deal of life now until we take full possession of eternal life later. In modern Greek, I thought this was cool, the word translated earnest in English is actually used for engagement ring. So in modern Greek, when you use that word which I can't pronounce because it's Greek. It actually means the engagement ring. What a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit does. He confirms that we belong to God. He is the engagement ring, a sign of good faith that the promise will be kept later. Later in his letter, Paul refers to the church as the bride of Christ, right? The Holy Spirit is the engagement ring, sealing the deal until we meet him on the wedding day. Now the King James Version finishes this verse like this, until the redemption of the purchased possession. And I think it's pretty accurate with its, how it translates that. The Holy Spirit is the down payment until Jesus finishes the transaction and finally takes us home as his bride to be with him in his presence forever. We are his betrothed bride right now. But his, the full consummation, when we'll be forever with him in his presence, is yet to come. It is the greatest love story ever told. This is the only love story with a truly happy ever after. And here's the cool part. It's to the praise of his glory. See how it ends in, in verse, verse 11? To the praise of his glory. It's, one, it's, it's here one last time, as if Paul's saying, like, Think about this. All this good stuff you get is for the praise of his glory. 
Lest we think that we are something special, lest we get caught up in the blessings and forget to look at the blessed one, lest we focus on the wedding dress and forget about the groom. Here it is again. It's all about Jesus. All of this is to the praise of his glory. He blesses us because he is blessed. He washes us and cleanses us and makes us good, look good so that he looks good. He chose us as his children so he could demonstrate his goodness. He has paid the price of our ransom so he could demonstrate his grace. He chose to marry his bride, the church, according to his good pleasure. Romans 11.36 says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. If we can wrap our brains around the fact that Jesus is the beginning and the ending of everything, we're going to get our lives in the right way. So this week, if you have been listening to, the, to this, these messages through the past few weeks, and you will know that everything that we've talked about has been for the believer in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Now, in a group this size, I would imagine there's one or two people in here who may not have believed. If it's you, I would encourage you not to delay. Without the seal of the Holy Spirit upon your life, you are on your own, and you're doomed to an eternity apart from the loving Father. This stuff isn't yours. So please talk to me or someone after the service if you have a question regarding this. But for us believers in Jesus, this week, when you experience happiness and joy, praise his glorious grace. When you struggle with temptation and sin, thank God and worship him for his forgiveness and his protection. When you grieve through pain and loss, offer up gratitude that all things will be united in Jesus. When you get to the point you just don't know what to do, praise him for the fact that he is God and he is good and he's got it under control. Simply turn to God in all of your circumstances and the blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will shower you with grace and peace. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you are a good God. You are an incredibly powerful God. You are beyond description. You're beyond knowledge at this point until we see you face to face. Thank you that you loved us enough to adopt us, to forgive us, to ransom us, to seal us and protect us, take care of us. Thank you that even though we mess up and muck up, God, you have it all under control and you have us in the palm of your hands. Thank you for loving us, this church, this motley crew. I pray that as we receive your love and your grace, and as we accept it, as we believe it to be true, that you will unite our hearts to you and unite our hearts to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.